Hey guys, it's Alan, and we're back for a new episode. Uh, also really excited because this week we're going to have our first guest. Um, we're changing up the format of the show a little bit to accommodate for that, so sometimes it will be me interviewing a guest, or sometimes it will be Hunter, sometimes uh, the two of us together uh, with our guest. Um, the guests that we're bringing on are generally people who are subject matter experts on the topic that we're discussing, or they have some sort of... Um, unique insight that we believe is valuable to the conversation, certainly over and above uh, what Hunter and I bring as generalists on every topic that we choose. Um, so we're really excited. Um, also really excited to introduce our first guest. His name is Donald Boone. Um, he's a good friend of mine from back when I was living in Seattle, but moreover, uh, Donald is a really interesting and inspiring guy. He is the founder and CEO of Boxed Up, which is an on-demand rental marketplace that he launched in February of 2019. Effectively, he tries to allow hobbyists or people who are trying to start new things not have to spend thousands and thousands of dollars on equipment by being able to rent that equipment from his company and having it shipped out. Uh, soon to be more um, changes and some evolution coming in that company. I'm really excited to see where it goes, and I love what he's been doing with that. Uh, as his day job, which is crazy because that seems like enough in and of itself, um, he is the leader of the new industry entry and development division of the Amazon business team out in Seattle, Washington. Um, he is a native of Seat Pleasant, Maryland, um, and he went to school down at North Carolina A&T where he studied mechanical engineering. He also served as the president of the National Society of Black Engineers, and he was the, also the president of Beta Epsilon Chapter of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity. He is a serial entrepreneur who has previously managed real estate investments, clothing, and mobile application companies. When he's not hard at work, Donald spends time with his wife, AJ, and his two children, Noel and DJ. It's good to be back and looking forward to the conversation with Donald. Yeah, 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 we know. So it's good to catch up with you. Uh, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Um, even on the podcast itself, we've been on a little bit of a hiatus for various reasons. I don't know. Um, we we did like a, a little bit of a series early on about just like life um, at home with COVID. And we have my co-host Hunter and I have two very different scenarios. He lives at home with elderly parents. Um, so he's kind of like looking after them and. Um, so that's been sort of an interesting, like, um, hard, you know, how do you say like in this time and the, during the pandemic and like living with elderly people, um, that kind of thing. Meanwhile, I'm at home with two kids under the age of four. Um, but you have a little bit of that going on. So I just thought, first of all, I just want to start out You're you're we, we had an episode that we did on the U S Senate. Um, where we had um, a subject matter expert guest come on and talk with us. That is so far unreleased. I don't know if it'll go up before this one or not. <laughs> um, but you're uh, you're like kind of our first official guest. So first of all, welcome and thank you um, for taking the time. Um, but I just want to give you an opportunity first to talk a little bit about yourself and your background, and we'll give um, we'll give people a sense of why we're having this conversation. Some of the things we've talked about in the past, um, just in our personal relationship. And then we'll just sort of take it from there. Yep. No, definitely, man. Thanks for having me. Um, 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm growing more comfortable with like using my voice and sort of removing like my, my personal emotions from sort of doing a lot of this stuff. I, I think I've, I've sort of, sort of settled in the role of like my role, uh, in life in, in part, I think it, it is like God put me on this planet to share my experience with others, because I think it, there are a lot of people that, that can relate to my experience from one angle or mm-hmm. another. So maybe I'll, I'll jump in, you know, just a sort of quick high level bio, uh, born and raised in the seat, pleasant, uh, born and raised in seat, pleasant. So in the mm-hmm. Washington DC area, Five minutes from the D.C. line. And if anybody from that area knows, it, it's all pretty, pretty tight knit there. Mm-hmm. So grew up in C. Pleasant, same neighborhood as, as Kevin Durant. Um, and for all intents and purposes, I didn't realize it at the time. But but life life was was kind of crazy. I mean, it was it was sort of one of those uh, situations where, you, you know, you're growing up in it. You think sort of everything is normal. You yeah. only know you're normal. Sure. Um, but it wasn't until sort of like later in years, I started to figure out like, man, like, all right, I, you know, I, I knew I wanted these things or I knew these types of things were going on, but I thought that was happening to sort of to everyone. So could we can, me, we can like, dive into that whenever yeah, it makes sense. Just get like one quick concrete example on that. Um, I witnessed or I, I've had at least uh, like three friends taken uh, whose lives were taken from gun violence. Mm. Um, my father has been shot. Oh, wow. Uh, my next door neighbor has been shot. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a, a bullet hole and I grew up with a bullet hole in the side of my house. Wow. Um, you know, those types of things mm-hmm. like, hey, you know. Uh, New Year's Eve, we don't we hear fireworks, but we also hear gunshots mm-hmm. kind of thing like, oh, OK, we, I was walking down the street and there was, you know, police on do not enter uh, police tape on a, a block over. Oh, somebody must have gotten shot. We'll find out about it in the neighborhood in the next couple of days. Yeah. We'll figure out who died mm-hmm. kind of thing. Wow. So it was, it was that kind of neighborhood. But, you know, we were kind of um, siloed off from it a little bit. My mom did a really good job of sort of raising us. So. Um, I, yeah, to, yeah, this was one of those things you think it's normal. And you, you've told your so your mom, she worked for the FBI, right? Yep. My mom, uh, re- retired FBI. She started off as a, uh, as a, a secretary there, um, and sort of just worked her way up. Um, but yep, she, she retired from the FBI a couple of years ago. Okay. Uh, dad, uh, stopped working when I was around three years old. Um, so he had, he, he had a, a a really challenging, uh, life that sort of life events that led up to that situation, Mm -hmm. but effectively, uh, he grew up in a, in a pretty large house. Um, he, he didn't know his, well, he thought he knew his birth father. Mm -hmm. Um, turns out that he was actually, uh, not, he did not have the same father as the rest of his siblings. Mm. Uh, so this sort of spiraling effect that played in a lot of his emotions, he ended up having to drop out of middle school to take care of a lot of his older siblings, mm-hmm. um, sort of later to only found out, find out that they didn't share the same father. And that played, you know, pretty some traumatic events in his life um, that led him down a path where he would later start to struggle with drug abuse. Sure. Um, and and that led to him sort of losing his first job around the age of that around the age that I was three mm-hmm. and sort of throughout my my childhood, sort of in and out of employment, uh, unemployment, 
uh, challenges with drugs and, and some of the situations that that brought into the house. Uh, so really, like my mom was the rock in our family. My older brother, Dorian, probably served more of a father figure. Uh, and then my dad, who does have this traditional uh, father figure uh, persona uh, and did in a lot of ways, but at the same time, went, battled his own uh, mental health issues mm-hmm. and life challenges that sort of led him down the path where he couldn't be as present of a father uh, as he wanted to be and as I wanted him to be, although he was in the house with him. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about the trajectory. Uh, I mean, obviously, like high school is a very important time for everyone in terms of like figuring out what you're going to do and where you're going to go. Also the events that happen around you. Um, and I, you know, I've been, I think like a lot of my own personal past, I sort of, uh, probably like suppressed a lot of that for a long time. It's just like, I chose not to think about it. It's like once I got off to college and then beyond that was like, okay, I'm identifying who I want to be and like trying to define myself from this point forward because there was um there was like a lot of trauma in my family and other things like that we um i mean i could get to that later on obviously we i want to hear more about your story but like the point being what happens at that kind of critical point of your life 16 to 18 where it's like okay what's donald gonna do i'm taking all this that i've seen in my life everything that seems normal to me, but I know that there's like a sense, you know, that like there's kind of something out there for me. Um, What was, what was that? What was that path like? Yeah, I think for me and and my brother in a lot of ways, I would say it happened even earlier. I mean, the things that shaped our childhood. So if you take the sort of the dual uh, personalities and backgrounds of my two parents, you know, my mom retired FBI. My father battled drug abuse. So the way the lens that they of which they they saw the world was completely different. Like my father was like super cool with everybody in the neighborhood. So like we were known as like Boone's kids. And my mom, uh, all of her five sisters went to college. A lot of them got their masters, uh, you know, doctors, nurses, et cetera. Um, and my father didn't even have a, a college a high school degree. Mm -hmm. So you you sort of take those diametrically opposed um, uh, opinions on a lot of things. It it started to shape me. I'd probably say in middle school. So my my father didn't emphasize school as much. My mother heavily emphasized school. Mm -hmm. Um, But because of that, like we were always in tag, which is talented and gifted uh, classes in that area. But I was, you know, I had a, a diverse middle school but I'd ride the bus with all of my friends, all of my homies from the neighborhood. And I'd get on the bus and I'm like, man, Boone, you talk white. Like you talk white <laughs> uh, because I, I talked proper. My mom did not allow me to speak slang in the house. Like if a slang word slipped out of my mouth, she'd immediately correct us. So like my black friends would tell me, you know, I talked white. And then I ride the bus into school. They we part ways. They go their own way. And then I'd go and sort and sort of these sort of tag and science and tech classes and I'd be the only black guy. Mm-hmm. So I'd say and I say I tell that story because it was sort of middle school that really started to mold how I needed to to move the rest of my life. So I it sort of settled into me at that point. I wasn't necessarily normal. At least I wasn't like my friends. So when high school came definitely those impressionable times, I'd sort of always kind of been this, you know, pseudo misfit. 
and in high school played high school basketball but then i also served on the student government association mm-hmm. um so that sort of like kind of oddballness continued to carry on like my 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 basketball friends like man boom you a nerd like you know can you help <laughs> us with our homework uh-huh. they, we had study hall i just skipped study hall because like i didn't need to do any you know extra like homework time mm-hmm. that they needed um and then like at one point my my high school basketball coach like wanted me to like quit student government to sort of focus on potentially a basketball career. Sure. So there was always like, you know, there's always that coach me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there was all, there's this part of me that was like normal around the way do, but then there was this other part of me that started to like have these dreams and aspirations of doing things outside of like what everybody else was doing. And I had grown comfortable with that in middle school. And then I, I started to recognize that like engineers and, and people in STEM with STEM backgrounds made a lot more money than everybody else. Mm -hmm. And really I saw that as my ticket out. I'm like, Whoa, like I remember like, and I was blessed enough to have a a computer in my home. Not everybody had computers in their house at the time, but I was blessed enough, blessed enough to have a desktop PC. I'd look up how much like engineers got paid and I'm like, okay, mechanical electrical engineers, they're coming out of school making 60 plus thousand dollars. Boom. That's my ticket out. Mm-hmm. And then I, at that point, I was just kind of laser focused, like, all right, I'm only going to be six feet. My, my, this is my my motivating single motivating factor is let's go, let's get money. And then that way I don't have to worry about all of this stuff that I've been worrying about my whole life. Like when I want pizza, when I want a pair of shoes, all of that stuff goes away. I don't need to ask mom for anything else. So sort of that was my singular focus around the high school time frame going into college. Okay, I want to circle back to a few things that you said there, but real quick. So you end up going to uh, A&T in North Carolina. Yep. Um, how did you choose that school and what led you there? I was going to go to uh, University of Maryland or, or Georgia Tech okay. because both of those had really strong engineering programs. Uh, I actually didn't land. My mom went to Stillman College, which is a, an HBCU in Alabama. My brother mm-hmm. went to Morehouse, HBCU in the AUC in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was on my, my radar, but it wasn't that important to me. Um, and then I went on a college tour, uh, a sorority, uh, graduate chapter of sorority organization, Delta Sigma Theta put on a college tour and we go on this college tour up and down the East coast and we drive all the way to Florida. We hit Tuskegee and then we work our way up the coast and I'd known of A&T, but not really. And then I land on the campus and I'm like, this campus is incredible. Like I saw my brother, they were sharing showers, bathrooms, et cetera. And mm-hmm. A&T, you pretty much had your own apartment on campus. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of the first hook to get me in there. And then over time, I, I really realized like, wow, my choice to make an, to choose an HBCU for education would, would really uh, be a turning point in my, in my life. Honestly. Okay. And then, so from school, do you go straight to Exxon or was there, um, some transition straight to Exxon. Okay. So, uh, I did a, a few internships. Yeah. Well, I bounced, I bounced around in a, a couple of internships and then I sort of nestled in into the oil and gas space. Remember money was my, my sort of sole motivate. In fact, I didn't really think about like what I wanted to do is like what pays the most. Sure. And so I, I started with Exxon. Did you feel uh, like that was Florida. because like, uh, focusing on like what I quote unquote want to do versus like just being able to, become part of the system of making money was like, I mean, for lack of a better term, I guess, privileged 
It's like, I don't even have time to think about that. It's just like, I just, this, I, this is what I have to do. 100%. Like, <laughs> I, it, it's not even something that crossed my mind. Like, what does Donald enjoy? I could literally, it's like, what am I good at? What can produce capital? That is the answer. Because uh-huh. in that, you got to recognize, you know, my, my parents and their parents sort of grew up in the same, with the same mindset. It's, we'll get educated and we'll produce to bring home to our, our families. And, and that's really all I, I thought about. I mean, I dabbled with things on the side of, uh, you know, I, I sold like CDs and like sold gummy worms and candy and, and in college. Mm-hmm. So like business was attractive to me, mm-hmm. but it, from my pers- uh, vantage point, it really didn't pay well, at least that I knew of. Uh, so yeah, I, really like what I wanted to do versus what I had to do. I, I, I honestly kind of just thought of like what will secure me financially. Yeah. That was sort of motivating factor. Number. So you spend uh, almost a decade at Exxon based out of Houston. And then uh, you meet our uh, mutual friend, Brett, and decide uh, I'm going to make, I'm going to make a play to try to get in an Amazon. Um, right. Is that fair to say? Yeah, mm-hmm. sort of. You know, I started with Exxon. I, I thought I was going to, you know, retire there. I was on a really good executive path, growing well um, financially. And at the at the time, we were actually based in Virginia. They consolidated their headquarters, moved everyone to Texas, mm-hmm. uh, into the Woodlands in the Houston area. And uh, at that time, I'd started to mature to a phase where I actually started heavily, more heavily pursuing things that I enjoyed doing. So when I got out, I started to trade stocks that sort of then led me down to the path of real estate. Mm -hmm. And then I started analyzing the financials. I'm like, man, it's going to take a really long time in order to cash flow enough properties in order for this to be my full time. I need to swing even bigger. Mm -hmm. And that's when I I said, you know, I've always, you know, been an entrepreneur adjacent. Let me go and start a company. So actually before meeting uh, our mutual friend, Brett, I launched a, a startup called Olio. Mm-hmm. Um, I basically wanted to digitize the menu uh, ordering, the restaurant experience, Process, allow right? people to see like digital <laughs> menus on their phone, uh, order virtually through their phone, pay mm-hmm. on their phone, sort of all contactless. The restaurant would sort of be in the palm of your hands. Sure. Something found out I was ahead of my time, ahead right? Like time. if this existed during COVID, <laughs> it'd be perfect. You know, I'd, I'd be freaking yeah. Jeff Bezos because. <laughs> You know, this would all work. And uh, I was I was just ahead of my time. But long story short, that Mm -hmm. didn't go well as I wanted it to. And I was sort of back, like stuck at Exxon. But I I recognized at that point I needed to get out. And we were working on a project at at Exxon with Amazon. uh, And that was sort of my ticket. I I latched on to Amazon, to that relationship with uh, Brett and said, all right, they're doing a lot more cooler stuff that looks a lot closer to my startup. Let's go there and really learn how like companies of their scale really mm-hmm. do uh, really launch things. Mm-hmm. And, and that's sort of where that started. Sure. And so um, that's where you and I met, obviously, working together at Amazon. And then there's a couple things. So now I want to go back a little bit to some of the stuff you're talking about, like with middle school and this, because you and I started to have conversations almost right off the bat. Um about things that were a little bit deeper than business um, and sort of what was going on at work. And uh, that was a breath of fresh air for me, someone who um, was also relatively new to the Northwest. And uh, I mean, 
I'll probably let you speak to this more so than myself, but a fairly homogenous culture, you might say, in the Northwest. (laughs) And I would say that's like my interpretation of that sometimes was even um, like, aside from the seemingly very low number of black people at Amazon that I ever met while I was there, um, even like apart from race, it was like culturally a pretty homogenous place. It sort of like didn't matter. It's like there because there are people from all over the world that work there, obviously. Um, but it's sort of like mindset wise and and like focus wise, it was sort of like very corporate, for lack of a yep. better term. Um, but here you have now spent all of your um adult career in a in a highly corporate environment. Um, Exxon, then to Amazon, two probably the largest, most well known companies in the world my uh my trajectory was quite a bit different i was um worked in small businesses and nonprofits and education all before coming to amazon and so it was like sort of a big culture shock for me but the reason why i'm trying to tie these things together is because like one of the first things that you sort of talk talk to me about was like um you would be trying to explain to some of your friends like oh i'm like going snowboarding or i'm doing this and you were like they said, man, Donald, you're doing white people shit. <laughs> like, you, I forget you. You just told me that, like, <laughs> I and I laughed. And yeah. so, like, I guess, like, all of your story really does line up to this sort of, like, do you feel a little bit, like, of two worlds? Um, there's, like, this part of you, like, where you're from and, like, all your, you know, all your friends from home and like sort of the environment you grew up in. And then there's like, now you've been like firmly seated and this is like progressing toward more of what I really want to talk about, which is like systemically what you feel like you've dealt with as a black man in the corporate work environment and this, and trying to become an entrepreneur and this, that, and the third, like what, what is it like to like try to navigate all of that at the same time? Yeah, it's, um, you know, so I'm trying to find this line that Drake said because it, it kind of it summarizes exactly how I've how I've always felt. But in 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 summation, he basically said, um, you know, I, I make music and I'm perceived uh, uh, I'm not I'm not perceived black enough uh for who I am and the type of music that I make but then you know you know in in other spaces like I'm too black and mm-hmm. sort of just feeling like it, you're in the middle of this world where like you're you go back home and you go back to your neighborhood and I go back to my neighborhood like after my first internship I remember falling in love with like rainbow sandals which mm-hmm. is a a super like very normal thing in the world right yeah I go back home people are like Fuck you got on fuck you got your toes out for, boom. Like what is that? You got on thong flip-flops? Yeah. And so like things that people think is just really normal. Like flip-flops aren't a cultural thing. You don't think until like you go back into your neighborhood and you got on rainbow sandals and people yeah. talk about you. So yeah. but I, but I got into the point where I didn't even care anymore. So I was comfortable. It's just like, all right, I mean it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh I'd go like in another internship. I had an internship in LA, so I went surfing. So like I would start to like just start to lean into like, you know what? You know, sorry if I if you got to edit any of this, but I'm like, no. fuck it. Like 
I'll do what I want to do. I live how I want to live. I just enjoy life. And then I really just kind of that was sort of like the freeing moment for me because I stopped to think so much less about what people cared about me um, because I knew that didn't change me. Uh, But then, yeah, you know, you walk into a, a corporate room. And, you know, I, I guess sort of it just becomes normalized. You know, Seattle was no different than any other place I'd interned or like my corporate work. Like you walk around and yeah, homogenous is a good word. It was all it's pretty mostly white people. Mm-hmm. And but that was cool. You know, I didn't I didn't mind that um, because I, I was I was comfortable and I'd, I'd really gotten to a point where that didn't matter to me as much. And then I also moved out with my family. So I, I still was always grounded in that. But yeah, there's there's definitely times where, you know, you tell your friends what you're doing and just like, you eating sushi, bro? Like, what are you doing? And, you know, college dudes were eating sushi. And I was like, hey, look, man, this is a whole nother world. Y'all don't know about. They live life good. They eat sushi. They, they do cookouts on boats. It's crazy. It's a crazy uh-huh. world out there. Like, y'all yeah. should try some of this stuff. Yeah. Oh, that reminds me. You got uh, so I'm sure uh, in the intro um, I will have talked about some of this, but your many entrepreneurial um, endeavors. One of them is uh, Yacht Week, Austin Yacht Week, which obviously has been canceled this year because of yeah. Um, well, Texas. I mean, come on now, Texas. I'm from Texas, but <laughs> <laughs> feeling pretty bad for what they got going yep. on down there. Um, Rainbow sandals, man. That's really good. You know, one time I <laughs> um, so I went to. Uh, A&M, Texas A&M. And yep. one time uh, I go back with my wife, Elizabeth, and she is from Nova. Also, she's from Annandale, which is like, mm. I don't know, probably 25 minutes away from where you grew up or something like that. And she went to Mary Washington, which is like a little liberal arts school in Fredericksburg, mm-hmm. about halfway between where I live now, Richmond and DC. And so she didn't have like she didn't care anything about football or like big college experience. Nothing. It was just like totally off her radar. So we go one weekend and it's like, you know, Kyle field and there's like 90,000 people and it's like massive tailgates everywhere. And she's like, what is this place? She's like, what is this place? (laughs) And, um, and we're, I remember we're walking from the tailgate, like over to the student center. And just for kicks, I counted how many, people were wearing Sperry top ciders and <laughs> I could only get to 72. It was, as <laughs> right. <laughs> it was as high. I mean, talk about, so, well, so like, this is the thing I've always, this thing I've always wondered though, like when you hear something like, you know, it's like when, when president Obama was in office and they were in like people being critical, like, Oh, he's not black enough. Like, what does that mean to you when you hear somebody say that? You know, like, what is it? How do you how do you take something like that? Yeah, I found the Drake lyric, by the way. I said, I used uh-huh. to get teased for being black and now I'm here and I'm not black enough. Uh huh. And that is how a lot of. It, 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 it just reminds me that that is, that encapsulates the emotions that a lot of people that grow up in predominantly black neighborhoods think. You. There is a sort of a way that you walk and talk and look in in the same way that there's homogenous culture, let's say in a corporate environment like an Amazon or Exxon. Mm -hmm. There's definitely homogenous culture like growing up in the hood. Mm -hmm. You know, people 
look and sort of do all of the same types of things. There isn't a lot of outside thinking. Um, and, and you sort of grow up in this culture and that's all you know. And people sort of adapt to that. And in order to be successful and to be succeed and to be liked in those cultures, you have to act a certain way. So when people like Obama flash on the scene, they are while like black in color, a lot of black people in, 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 you know, a lot of black people still feel this way about Obama. Like, man, like he was good. Like he was the first black black president, but like he didn't do anything for us. Hmm. And there's sort of this, uh, that concept in a lot of places where, you know, people either move away or sort of grow outside of that homogenous look and feel that people are used to. And they're like, well, you know, he looked, he looked black, but like he ain't really black. Hmm. And so that, that's a, a very common thing. I think for me, I accept it and I'll, I know how to recognize uh, that thought, that thought and that mindset, because I was also once there, you know, I, I, I understand that perspective. But now I, I sort of also get the other perspective, like at some point you got to grow outside of that. And, yeah, a lot of people may th- they may think and feel that way. But you eventually get to a point where you can recognize the two. You recognize the origins of that mindset. But then you also recognize at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. And you, you kind of you, you, you develop into who you are, regardless of how cultures and different groups of people mm-hmm. uh, perceive. Now, so, I mean, I'm highly aware that this conversation is like, um, I mean, it's a, like lots of these topics are sensitive and like, uh, if somebody who's listening to this might be like, oh, well he asked the wrong question or he's Lee, he's like, I don't know. You know, I just don't, I, I just sort of want to like clear the air and say, you and I are just trying to have a conversation here. Right. So like, I'm not trying to put you on the spot for anything or like make any presumptions about you know knowing anything about your experience in a a way that i don't uh only what i can relate to but um i think one of the sort of so like all that being said i mean i think you know we're kind of unpacking like your history and sort of what has led you to the things that you want to do and all those things but um you know, at the same time, you are, uh, you're highly tuned in to, uh, kind of what's going on, you know, right now, um, on our streets. And, you know, uh, I want you to talk a little bit specifically about the murder of George Floyd and how that's affected you and, and some of your thoughts about the way, the way black communities are policed. Um, and I have a few questions specific to that because of people I know in my life and like some of the things I've heard. And this is like part of it too, is coming from like, racism and like one i want to kind of hear what your thoughts are even on the definition of systemic racism because i know that term gets used a lot like in the media online and i think a lot of people are just like you know they can tune it out they're just like well i don't know uh that's whatever they're making excuses or like somebody might even point to your story like somebody who is so inclined might point to your story and use it as like the prime example and the argument of like every white supremacist that I know, who's basically like, well, Donald did it. Why can't anybody do it? You know, Obama um, became president. Of course, yeah, it's right. so, obviously not an issue. Right. I want to talk about a few of those things. But like from my perspective, one thing I have struggled with a lot in my life generally, but even more acutely in recent years is like how to reconcile where you come from, the things that you heard growing up the environment that you're exposed to the sort of like language that people use and the things that like become ingrained in you 
It's like, yeah, I'm not going to sit here and tell you I've never used the N word in my life, but I can tell you the I can tell you the last time I used it. I remember it so specifically and I was not even trying to be derogatory, but it was like someone I appreciate it very much to this day called me out hard on it. It was like, listen. That is not something we're going to do. And I don't know, I was probably 19, 20 at the time or something like that. But all that being that it's like, I spent X number of years of my life in an environment where I heard things like, well, when your sister went to school, there were only four black people in the school. And now there are whatever, eight, uh, who knows, you know, whatever. But it's like that kind of thing. It's like my grandfather, like... I was very close friends with uh, the tailback on my football team in high school. And he, he would come over to our house and we would, you know, like go fishing and do stuff like this. And my grandfather like pulls my dad aside one day. He's like, you're going to let that, you're going to let that colored boy drink out of the same water bottle as Alan. Like literally this is like what, That's wild. Two, 1999. I yeah. mean, so, and that's like, that's my whole life, man. And so, like, then... So you I were Matt to... Saracen and he was Smash coming over, <laughs> coming over Well, I don't know about that. But, <laughs> oh, no, you're always, you're always calling me out on being Saracen. That's fine. We, we'll talk about that another day. <laughs> um, so many but the, similarities. But the point being, it's like, and then I transition goes straight to a pretty conservative university. I mean, everything there is named after George H.W. Bush, basically. Um don't you know again exposed to far fewer like a far fewer uh black and brown people at school than i was in high school which was like a pretty i ultimately ended up going to a pretty diverse high school um and and at that point in my life i kind of realized like as adulthood goes on like we actually become more segregated i think like as kids i felt a lot more like in tune with you know it's just like we're all going to each other's houses you know different neighborhoods whatever whatever the point of getting to all this is that like somewhere in that somewhere in those years, like I transitioned from being someone who was like brought up and I don't mean it's like, this is the, this is like part of, part of the issue too, is that like we have highly politicized the, the like sides of whether or not you can just be like decent to people about their race. And, but it was like, there was a clear connection between like a very conservative upbringing and household and uh, environment to like people using negative language about people on a racial basis or like, like defining people based on their, their groups or their background or what have you. And like implicitly that it was like, we were not well off. We were not, uh, we were not a family who had money or like, it was just like, but like implicitly we're better because we're white. And like mm-hmm. that might not have ever been like specifically stated out loud, but it was very much the implication, like all around. <clears throat> and and so years, you know, years go by. I become more progressive and liberal in my thinking as like you know through college. I was fortunate enough to meet somebody who like basically challenged my belief system and said like, "You only mm. like think that because like that's what your parents told you or whatever, you know." But like, why don't you think about things this way? And then like, that precipitated the beginning of sort of thinking about things in a new way all this being said the history of your life and like knowing what you know how has the systemic nature of even somebody like me who is now your friend but who's like there is like a scenario where i could have um 
been a very different person than I am, I guess you might say. Totally. And like, and that's true. And that's like, can be true across the board that basically like what people are exposed to when they're, it's like, in some ways I had to strive and fight to overcome the environment where I was from to get to a place where like, I thought about things in a different way. The difference is that when I go into a job interview or I go into a boardroom or whatever, no one ever thinks about my race, right? Like I never yeah. have to, it's never thing I ever have to be conscious about. And yeah. so, and like, and that there are like preconceived or built in biases based on that. Yeah. And like, I believe that is like the, the nature and foundation of systemic racism, just because like the world is made up of individuals and individuals are exposed to lines of thinking throughout their life. And that gives them like, maybe not even cognizant built-in biases. So how, like, how do you perceive that? And how have you navigated it as someone who has like, so you've been so successful. I mean, there's no other way to say it. Like you've been so successful at basically achieving what you have set out to achieve. Totally. Yeah. A lot of, a lot to unpack there. I think the, the first, the way I tackle it is let's just talk about the first part. I think, uh, you, Alan, have always done a really good job of stepping back and and recognizing your privilege, recognizing the differences of our backgrounds, but not uh, assuming anything about anyone. And I've always commended you for that. I've always admired you for that, um, because then that 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 sort of takes makes you have to elevate yourself sort of beyond of sort of your beyond your own perspective on a lot of things and thoughts. Um, and for that, I've always loved having these conversations with you um, because it, it's a safe space. I remember, I remember vividly after uh, I came home the Monday uh, after watching Black Panther for the first time, and we had a conference call, a one-on-one, and you asked me how watching the movie Black Panther felt. And just even that mindset takes uh, a lot because you have to process that there's a, a people uh, who have never seen themselves on screen because of the, the makeup of our country and, and also recognize someone like me who lives in a place like Seattle and the, the impact that watching a movie like Black Panther would have on me. So just even, you know, processing that says a lot about you as a person. Um, so this is a, a complete safe space. And I've, I've always loved having these conversations because we come from completely different places into all of your points. Uh, you could have been a, a very, very different dude, but you're not, and, and you are who you are, and, and that's what what I uh, respect so much. Um, the, the second piece, today's environment, uh, sort of George Floyd. You know, if you, it, it, it sort of is George Floyd was like the climax, and and if this is a movie, right, um, or or history is a movie, I think George Floyd is like the point, the midpoint in the movie where like shit goes down and everything changes. And then that sort of spins the movie off into a different direction. And just to zoom in on like the weeks leading up to that event, Ahmaud Arbery is mm -hmm. lynched in the street. And mm -hmm. that's sort of like strike one. And I think it's sort of as a people that, that really didn't seem like to be anything too much different than what we've seen over the years, right? Like Eric Garner, uh, Trayvon Martin, it, we had been seeing it over and over again. So Philando Castile, you see it and you react to it, but not as much. I, I think what made it traumatic is that it was on video. Mm -hmm. So that happens. But then there's all like, all right, well, 
you know, what happened before that? They say he robbed somewhere, yep. all of this stuff, you know, and here comes like the, the teardown of like him as an individual. Yeah, he's a criminal. To, uh, to take to criminalize him to take away some of his credibility right to say mm-hmm. he deserved this regardless and then um the amy cooper situation happens in new york and that pissed a lot of people off because here is someone who take you you recognize your privilege and you sort of use it as a tool to to make yourself more open and informed and engage in conversations this is a woman in central park who was using her privilege as a tool uh, to 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 turn it into a weapon. And she called the police and altered her voice in order to sound distressed and emphasized. There is a black man who's threatening me and my dog. And literally just in that instant, in like the snap of a of a finger, she turned that into a weapon. And that comes from years of education. And that's her recognizing that this entire sort of systemic culture of society and in that moment using it to her advantage. Mm -hmm. So when George Floyd happens, this is just sort of a run up to uh, uh, an event. So when that happens, the video comes out, you see it and it's so long and you're like, Jesus Christ, like this is happening on the street. Uh, The officer felt comfortable enough to do that, to know that videos were running and to not care and to, to know, um, to, to feel that safe, uh, and to know that is, is, is pretty incredible. And so what I always do is say, let's just flip the scenarios around. Let's say that was a black officer. Let's say that was a white guy on the ground. Mm-hmm. There would, I mean, that dude would have been under the jail so freaking fast, mm-hmm. but it took the country rioting uh, and the world riding, to, to be quite honest, in order for him to be arrested. So, you know, th- that that underscores so much about our society that, A, you know, all of those people could feel comfortable doing the things that they did. Um, and, and then B, it, it taking so long. You look in the case of Breonna Taylor's, they still haven't even arrested the cops. Right. So um, the systemic piece, it's it's deep, man. And you know, it makes a lot of sense. And the part that sort of frustrates me about the world is, you know, we were we were slaves and segregated a hell of a lot longer than we've been living in this mixed world. You know, mm-hmm. six, from mm-hmm. 1619 to 1865 uh, was slavery, you know, 260 plus years of slavery. Mm-hmm. And then we were segregated for another hundred years before the the government stepped up and said that all right you know it's actually not right to be uh to segregate it we should we should blend these these worlds together but just like you have stories about you know your father and your grandfather in sort of high school my mom recently told me a story where they re they um they um desegregated the schools they brought everyone together and the white parents were so upset they pulled their kids out they pulled the books out. They pulled the resources out. They pulled the instruments from the, the music classes and they left uh, they left the, my mom's high school pretty much deprived of any resources um, because they had lesser teachers at that point. They didn't have the utilities and, and the, the tools that they needed to have a productive academic life. And that was just sort of normal, man. And, you know, mm-hmm. granted, she lived in Alabama, so that's definitely an extreme case. 
But like if if that is the the starting point of like, all right, segregation is no longer something that we're going to accept. However, there's a, a long standing and general generational mindset that persists amongst uh, a lot of people in power and a lot of people with money. Um, the other thing I'll say is I heard uh, a guy say it one way is he said, if we're both starting, if we're both running in a race and you get a 200 yard or 200 meter head start mm-hmm. and then say, all right, you can go. And then now I'll start running behind you. You can't then call it a fair race because you got out to a 200 meter advantage. And right. that's often what it feels like as a black person is the reason why I feel like I have to swing for the fences with startups, with real estate, with, with stocks. Um, it'd be really, really critical um, and thoughtful what my money is. I don't have a lot of margin for error. And what I'm trying to make up is the, the opportunities that a lot of non-black people had to build generational wealth. My families just don't have. Mm-hmm. and my frustration as a black person in America isn't necessarily that um, I am starting from behind. I've reconciled with that part. I think the frustrating part is, is that the world and society and a lot of people don't recognize that we're starting from behind. And I I feel like so many things could be much better off if we came to the table and said, yes, these, these things happen. Uh, We fully recognize that we're not on an equal playing field. And here are the following ways that we're going to try to do better. Instead, we've allowed things like redlining to occur. We have found ways to try to keep uh, black and brown people uh, sort of in their quote unquote place instead of accepting that there was wrong that was done. And here is we do have to do some proactive things in order to undo all of the bad that we did for so long. And, and that's the, the biggest frustrating part is it's not an equal race. Um, and a lot of people, you sort of walk around with this burden to feel like you have to do extra and do good and be perfect and go to this corporate mm. job. And and I have to nail every single presentation because I got I got a, I got a shot. I'm I am I am I'm not throwing away my shot. I don't know if you <laughs> saw Hamilton yet, but I, that song is in my head. I, but I feel that way. I literally. It's funny. I I prep. I give myself a prep talk, a pep talk, and I sing that song in my head before like big presentations, mm-hmm. because like this is my shot, man. And like so many people look up to me and be like, "Boo, you made it, man! You at Amazon, yo! Like that's crazy. Like put me on." So like I, I feel this responsibility to mm-hmm. like carry this extra weight and be successful, so that then I can turn around and give people jobs and pull back into the community and build opportunities for folks. And that's a burden that I carry. It's a burden that I accept. But I, 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 my, what I want anyone taking away from this conversation is uh, to grow up white in America is to not have to carry that burden. You may go above and beyond to do additional things, but you don't necessarily have to feel that weight. And just freeing yourself of that weight en- enables you and allows you to do completely, vastly different things, allows your mind to go to completely different areas. That a lot of people that don't look like you don't have the opportunity to. They may be like me and, and feeling like I need to chase money uh, in order to stabilize my household and my family for the first 25 years of my life. And I just think like, man, what if I was 16 and I didn't even think about that? And I just wanted to be a violinist and yeah. I was passionate about it. Right. But I, I didn't have that opportunity because I, I was brought up. Different, so sure. So you said one thing that really I think 
stands out, uh, which is the margin for error. And margin for error is highly um, predicated upon race, I think, in this country. And I'll probably, uh, I mean, it's like, my, you know, the sort of question that was coming to my mind was like, well, what do you say to somebody who's like, well, you made it. I mean, you caught up, like you, you caught up in the race, like, so to speak, right? Like yeah. you are, you are now like basically on equal footing with where anybody could want to be in terms of like career success and like the finer things in life. I mean, I'm not saying like mm-hmm. we're wealthy or anything like that, but just like, mm-hmm. you know, that it's like you, you're not, you're not wanting from getting that pizza if you want to get it or, or what have you. And I think in a very similar way, it's like, you know, I grew up with the power getting shut off in a, in a home in disrepair and like totally. going from job to job sort of situation. My mother also being the stabilizing force um in those kinds of things so i have similarly struggled with uh what my therapist uh tells me is imposter syndrome <laughs> mm. yep. which is like well it's you know you go into a place like amazon you know, there are a lot of folks who um have like mbas from ivy league schools or yep. it's sort of like they had the ability to just go like well i'll go to this school and then um like no problem i'll either i either have the money to pay for this or i'll take out a loan that i know i'll be able to pay back to go to like yale or whatever and which is great i mean like but but it seems it's it's very to me it was like a little bit of a shock of how normalized that was it was just like this totally. is like nothing almost nothing remarkable uh, for, for people to be in this situation. It's the baseline. Here. That's how it it's was at baseline. Exxon. It was the baseline. It is yeah. so many people uh, were Ivy League, Masters, MBAs. That was the standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, it's totally. And, it, and just kind of kind of looking at that and going like, well, that, you know, was not my story or my journey at all. <laughs> and um, it, you feel it's like, you do have to sort of make the most of that opportunity once you're there. And, but again, I think from a perspective of when you have to assess what white privilege is at all, it's like you can, it's like, it's just like, let's be honest. Like I can afford to make a lot of mistakes and people will still give me opportunities without much like, um, I've made this argument to you about President Obama, actually, which is one of the things that I uh, I really appreciate about him so much is that he he knew that he had to be flawless, basically, right? Like, and no, he pretty much like, was like no scandal. Wild. I mean, yeah, it's like people argue about his policies or whatnot all you want, but it's like no scandals totally. by the book to the T, you know, precision. I mean, he knew. That if he went, if he, it's like, think if he had had even one of the 5,000 scandals that we've had to deal with in the last three and a half years, 10,000, how the world's mind would have exploded. And like, I think there's yeah, no totally. better, there's no better sort of like, just like way to distill it than that, which is like, you can, you can, you can be a, per, it's like, you can be a person who gets addicted to drugs and you can commit crimes and all these kinds of things. And if you're white, society will give you a shot to redeem yourself like almost instantly. But if you're a person of color, like they're going to George, they're going to do the George Floyd thing where it's like, mm-hmm. we're always going to tag you with like whatever your worst, like the worst version of yourself that you have ever been in your life. Like that is how we're going to, pers- that's like, that's going to be your narrative. That's what we're going to yep. perceive you as. Yeah. And you know, it's funny, like even just talk to, to talk about Obama, like his, the pace of his speaking in, in, encapsulates like 
how black people like almost talking like corporate America is you're thinking like 10 words ahead. Like, don't fuck this up. Don't fuck this up up." (laughs) in the back of your mind uh, to make sure you get it right. Right. And Mm -hmm. yeah, to your point, there's just there. It really just isn't a, a margin for error at all. And yeah, I think over time you, you kind of just get used to it. But yeah, I, I think the uh, he he he's a very interesting figure from that perspective because I, I think that he represents like man, look at everything he had to do to make it. And to your point, people will say, "Buddy made it. Buddy's here. Mm-hmm. We've solved it. Things are yeah." Equal. So it's now like, it's no, equal. they aren't. Right. I, he's just one that made it out. Like m- my brother and I, at least once a month, we share an Instagram or Facebook screenshot of somebody we grew up with who's dead now. Mm. Literally two weeks ago, homeboy of mine, we used to play basketball. We played basketball in the same area and mm-hmm. he, he died. Um, or, you know, someone in, in some way, sh- shape or form, we just happened to make it. Like we were filtered through all of these things and jumped over all of these hurdles. And just like somehow, like by the we ended up in the same point in the race, my legs might be a whole lot more sore because I ran a, a, <laughs> bit, a bit far further and a bit longer. And my my jerseys like ripped to shreds. Yeah, I made it. Um, but I also bring with me all of these these other scars. And so so that's the way I, I think about it is, you know, if 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 so many people sort of like me didn't have to go through those things. And other and, and other people who go through worse things. And I, I think like I could have been all of those things that that George I could have been George Joy, George Floyd. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I've done things. I was drinking before I was 21. Um, you know, I've done weed in places where it wasn't legal. Mm-hmm. And like, what if instead of like either a cop seeing me and saying, no, he's cool, he's a good guy. You know, I'll let him walk. Uh, or, you know, I was the one who actually got caught. I could be caught up in the system just like everybody else. But like, right. I've, I've definitely recognized, man, I got lucky and man, I was, I was blessed to, to make it. But like, it's so many people that just don't have those same opportunities. And I wish, yeah, you know, I, I could walk into a boardroom or, or walk into a meeting trying to get money from an investor and they see me and be like, oh yeah, I, I totally, you remind me a, a lot of Mark Zuckerberg. You're totally mm-hmm. gonna make it. Like I'll give you, I'll cut you this check. But no, that's not how it works at all. They see me and I'm just like, Ugh, I don't know. I ain't seen this work before, man. I, I think uh, we'll 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 play the conservative approach and we'll wait this out until we we meet the next person we want to find. Well, and so uh, you know, I'm glad that you called this piece out because you, we, let's like put some context around like quote unquote making it, and that's um, it's like. You know, we've made it as far as like being able to have good jobs and like, right. you know, right. pay pay bills without having to sweat the small stuff too much and stuff like that. But it's like access to like true generational wealth is still very much out of reach. Uh, I mean, like yeah. it at least has to be really, really fought for, right? Um, totally. and I mean, I think that's true. I think that's true of people of many different races in our country. The way, without a doubt. the way that the way that people are, uh, I mean, the way that like capitalism is self-perpetuating and its reward system um, consolidates wealth and power in a very small subsection of uh, of the society but you know it's something I've been thinking about because like, you brought up Hamilton right <laughs> and we've been we watched it we've been listening to it a lot our daughter loves the soundtrack now all that nice. stuff 
I couldn't help but think, like, we went out to, I, I feel like I always say this wrong, Mon- Monticello or Monticello, Monticello, we'll call it Monticello. It's like where Monticello, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's like Thomas Jefferson's estate, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. all this stuff about the statues. I mean, I live in Richmond, like, r- finally Confederate statues are getting tor- torn down and taken down here. It's really, uh, in a, maybe on a separate talk, we should talk about what's happened at the Robert E. Lee statue here, because it's really something incredible. Um, but the point being that the core and foundational element of success in the United States is really about nothing more than ownership. Like what you own, how much capital you have, what land you own. And for a long time that included people and that there is no, it's like the arguments that are going on about like tearing down the notion of our forefathers or like what people accomplished and everything. It's like, well, the point is that there is no great man who's ever existed and accomplished a lot that it wasn't because of like their workforce and like the things that they owned and for, um, for, for like our presidents and our forefathers, all of their wealth was, it was like generational from either from back home overseas or because they were, I mean, like Thomas Jefferson was given like a hundred plus slaves or something like that. And it's like, so Thomas Jefferson gets to be on the nickel and he gets the statue in Washington, DC. Right. And it's like, he's <clears throat> like a genius and a brilliant man, but it's like, that's it's all predicated on all the people that did work for him. And some of those people did it for free and not in right. like, and, and, and like, imagine if a company had was given a hundred injured, a hundred computer scientists and engineers for, and they didn't have to pay them. And yeah, they'd be successful. Of course, that person would be a billionaire. You have a hundred computer scientists working for you, whom you do not have to pay and put on payroll. You will build for, amazing things for sure. But and even but to take that even a step further to today is that like a company like Amazon that is so successful that generates so much revenue that uh, has a CEO that's like so outlandishly more wealthy than like anyone else in the world <laughs> is like. It's all based on labor. I mean, it's all based on the fact that they've been able to attract labor and it's much more cost effective for them to employ people to do and design and build the things that they are trying to implement and put out into market. uh, Then what they get back from that is like 10, 100, 1000 X. Yeah. And like, that's what business is built on. And so I'm not equating, I'm not equating modern day employment to slavery by any means, but I am saying that like every Every like person who is like, this was a great person and like he achieved and like, let's say when I say he, because like largely what we're taught all throughout our life is that it's like a white man that you learned about in history. And it's like this person achieved something or like accomplished this. It's like mostly it's because a bunch of other people did work for him. And for a really right. long time, those people did it for free. Right, right. A hundred percent. And even the, the examples that always come to my mind is we read stories about these um, once in a generation entrepreneurs and businessmen, and they often got these shots because they had an advantage. Jeff Bezos, uh, his, the first loan at his company uh, at Amazon was from his parents. His father was a chemical engineer at Exxon of all places Mm -hmm. and gave him, I think it was 250,000 bucks to get started. Um, Alan, what do you think is going to happen if I ask my mom for 250K? <laughs> you know, it ain't happening. Of course mm-hmm. it's not going to happen. Um, you know, 
Bill Gates, genius, absolute genius. Uh, I love that guy and, and the way his brain works. He, he also had the capability to, uh, to code and do all of these things at really, really young ages. So he had access to technology that gave him the opportunity to do things that a lot of other kids wouldn't have had the opportunity uh, to do. Um, so, you know, if you go down the list and, you know, all of these people uh, who've had these opportunities, you know, oftentimes they get they got a shot. And I think what is robbed from you uh, in some places, and that's not, it's not just a black thing. It's more of an economic thing to your point, uh, what begets wealth, but there are certainly socioeconomic classes that it just is tremendously hard to ever reach the point that these guys have made it to. And these women have made it to, um, because they don't get, they don't have ancestors and family members who have money that can, that can help them uh, with those opportunities. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, I kind of want to just wrap on a, a couple of different thoughts. Um, so, like, okay, this is just this is just me and you talking. We're not even recording this right now. So, okay, sure. Um, like, you've talked about. So, you've talked a lot about like your sort of. You had this sense that you were like a little bit different, or like that you wanted something different from your life, and that's like to sort of say that's sort of to like kind of put uh, like where you're from or some people that you know from where you're from or like ostensibly just like, and like I had, there's some similar, I have some similar feelings like about my, Mm -hmm. it was just like, I wanted to get out. I wanted to experience the world in a different way. Uh, Mm -hmm. But you like you, that sort of inherently you like kind of bucketize people or like where you're from into like a separate category from yourself by the nature of doing that a little bit. Does that make sense? What I'm mm-hmm, saying? Mm-hmm. It's like, it's like, I think about like people from back home or like people from Pearland or whatever. And I'm like, well, I like did this, that, and the third, I like moved to Austin and I became more progressive. Right. And then I moved to Washington and now, and it's like, you know, I've tr- I didn't like just do this, the other thing and like kind of follow the exact line of thinking of where I was from necessarily. Everybody else from Pearland. Yeah. And so how does that like for uh, for the fear of being the kind of person that's like asking you asking? It's like, of course, this is the burden of uh, people of color often, which is like, could you uh, please speak on behalf of every person of your race? Um, (laughs) But like, it's like, what is it? Okay, so. We've talked a lot about like you can ask it, man. No, I know it's just like the systemic. Yeah, it's like we've talked about like the systemic nature of things that it's like made even your path more challenging. But you're like, well, I like it's like I like you know like literally dodged the bullets or like I navigated or like I've got the I got the thread through the eye hole of the needle, and at least that's how you feel. And it's like, so what does that say in terms of like? you know, people back home or like people, you know, that you feel like didn't and like what systemic racism and what like the nature of our society, it's like the, I guess the point being, is like when Ben Shapiro goes on the radio and he's like, well, if Donald could do it, how come nobody, how come everybody else can't do it? It's like, yeah. what is the implicit statement behind? Like, I actually had to do something different to get out. What does that say about everyone else? that I know and like just, where I'm from. Yeah. My brother and I, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. 
my brother and I talk about this a lot. So like every time I talked about us sharing like images and stories of people that we know grew up with that have passed. And the other day I text him and I said, you know, have you ever, do you ever look at these pictures and, and hear these stories and think like, how in the hell are we here? He works at Exxon. I work at mm-hmm. Amazon. Mm-hmm. What in the, what happened? Like, and he's like, no, we had to be exceptional. Mm-hmm. We, we literally had to be exceptional. And, um, Martin Luther King said, it. he says, you know, success isn't to be measured about what you've, uh, how much you have, but what you've had to overcome in order to achieve uh, what you have. Yeah. And I feel like in a lot of ways, and he feels this way too, is you've reached just a point where we got good jobs and a house and can get peace of on whatever night you want to. And that, that measure of that success is probably the equivalent of like being a CEO. I'm not going to you know, say I'm, I'm Elon Musk, um, but if you actually measured what had to be done in order to reach that point, it's mm-hmm. probably the equivalent of like a really successful, like a Stuart Butterfield of Slack or something mm-hmm. like successful, not Jeff Bezos, but still rich. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- the thing is, like, to get to that point, you have to be exceptional. And I'd, I'd love a world where, like, you could you could make it and, and, and not be white. And not nec- not have to be exceptional, exceptional. and just okay. be good. It's like just you don't good. you yeah. don't just like uh you you couldn't have just like f- like backed your way into becoming a like a successful dentist or something. It's like oh, right. you would have had it's to come impossible. From- yeah, okay. Yes, that is impossible. You are looking, you know, like every. <laughs> Every black person you, you see in corporate America is like the equivalent. Like they made it to the NBA. Like that's how good they were. Mm-hmm. Like, you or the, know, or the arts, that, maybe. Yeah. You know, that that's that's how good they had to be. And so that's why there's always like this mutual respect for like other black people that I see in the workforce, because I can I instantly see them and like know of all the things that they had to battle to get there mm-hmm. uh, in order to become who they were. So there's like this this knowledge that, you know, like, man, they had to go through a lot because they had to go through half the stuff that I went through. Like, I know they earn their stripes and I know that they work hard. And that's why there's always this thing. Like, if, I feel like if more people only knew, like, of, of all the obstacles, people, uh, how finely threaded the needle had to be yeah. for, for people to reach where they were. Like, mm-hmm. there'd be a lot much more respect because you'd recognize how hard challenge well and there's so many i think micro instances that you've probably had to deal with that you it would be there's an inexhaustible list of things you would have to explain to someone to be like and then this thing was said or like then i had to overcome yeah. this thing and this i don't situation. even think about it yeah but you it's just like, gotta shake it off that well like i think like into uh, like uh inherently um privileges that like you've in many cases never had to even consider what that might be like <laughs> like totally alan i didn't grow a beard until i didn't grow, have a beard the first like seven years of my corporate career because the white men in positions of leadership did not have beards mm-hmm. and i remember a mentor of mine telling me to shave my beard because i needed to like do you see anyone else around you that has facial hair yeah no, you need to cut it off. And I remember shaving it off and looking in the mirror like, who am I? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, like even things, small things like that, you just don't even 
you know, can't even recognize like the number, uh, the, the number of things that sort of come up like, yeah. or that could be as simple as facial. Okay. So the last question I want to ask you, you mentioned at the top of the show, I'm not looking for any inside baseball information or anything, but you mentioned at the top of the show, you grew up in the same neighborhood as Kevin Durant and a more curious, like all the things you sort of talked about, like being, um, you know, it's like you, you're, 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 uh, you work for, a, you work for a good company, you are uh, an entrepreneur, things like that. It's like, what's your interpretation of what, um, what somebody like Kevin Durant has to go through because of his, like, because you say it's like either you have to, you either have to perform exceptionally or you have to be exceptional in some way. Right. And it's like, yep. he is naturally gifted. He's six foot 11 and he can handle the ball and his can score like no one in history. Basically. It's like, what do you think that carries with it? Just also just like being a guy from your neighborhood. And like, then he has to, and I'm not saying speak for Kevin Durant, but I'm saying it's like, totally. you're close to, I think it's something it's like, I have a good friend who works for the Spurs organization and in, in this, um, in the, in the aftermath of, um, George Floyd's death, they decided as an organization to basically like go to everybody on the team and everybody on the staff and just be, have, have them do testimonials about like, well, what has like life really been like? Um, for, and like, how has race played into that for you? And he was like, even as someone who is not a white, he is not a white person, but he's also not a black person. And he's like, just like how eye-opening that experience was just to have like athletes candidly tell their stories. But it's like, I think from a consumer of people who are famous or people who are really good at a certain thing, whether that be music or like athletes. And then like, particularly in America now, the large majority of the athletes in our most popular sports are black. And we look at that from a very like a far point of view. It's like, Oh, well he's rich now. So he must be, everything must be, like okay or like he made it out you know there's a lot of that like sentiment i mean like i'm speaking from even from like in college where it's like you know i had friends around me who were just like oh well like you know it's 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 like an athlete makes it out of uh out of the hood like you said and they're like uh they're good to go like they got nothing else to worry about now right. or whatever it's like sure. what do you yeah. what's your what's your perspective on like because that we we are probably at, I mean we're at a point in our society where there are more um, like famous and popular and well known uh, uh, people of color than of any other time probably yeah so what is the but what is that like for somebody like that who's like because you're talking about like I had to thread the needle and I've I carried this weight yeah. on me it's like what kind of what kind of weight does does uh, do you think that carries with it. It's huge. I mean, they had to, they, they did too. I mean, I look at, you know, a really good example of this and I'll get to Kevin is LeBron. I mean, for all intents and purposes, dude's life is kind of perfect. You have yet to hear of a single scandal, mm-hmm. um, anything, anything, you know, baby mama drama, nothing comes up on this dude. Mm-hmm. I mean, so like he, he's like the model citizen and in a lot of ways he's, He's like an Obama figure because for a lot of reasons, like he's had to be perfect. Um, but I also see someone like that and recognize all of the things that I'm sure they had to go to go through just like me and just like millions of other people to get to where they are. Same thing goes for Kevin. I mean, he grew up in this in the we grew up. We, we played basketball at the same rec center. Um, 
and he had to do he he also had to be exceptional Mm -hmm. and i I think what people don't see is yeah he's he is tall as hell um (laughs) but he worked he worked his ass off Mm -hmm. i mean that dude worked like no other person that i've seen work i mean he didn't even play basketball with us because he do drills on the side of the court 90 percent of the time so Mm -hmm. he wouldn't even play pickup with us he'd just be doing shooting drills or dribbling drills he'd often sleep at the gym, he had a home, but he slept there because he was there so late and he had to be in, in there. So, uh, so far he, he tell the story, he would sleep, he slept in the gym, uh, a lot of days. So I, you know, I have a lot of respect for him just recognizing everything that he's, he's had to navigate to get to where he is. And I know a lot of other athletes in the, in similar situations in the NBA have had to gone through same things. I'm sure they've had challenges at home. I'm sure they've had friends whose lives were taken through mm-hmm. drugs, through gun violence. So all of the things that they've had to navigate, uh, although not in a corporate, uh, uh, not via the corporate world, they've had to do, uh, even from a perspective of making it in the NBA, NFL, and uh, MLB, wherever it may be. Mm-hmm. All right, man. Well, I don't know what to say. I'm so glad we finally got to have this conversation. I've Years in the I've, making. Uh, years in the making, for sure. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I really appreciate it. I appreciate your time. I know it's early there, but it sounds like the kids maybe got up. So, I'll oh yeah, they it. were rumbling. I was I was waiting for somebody to come up and uh, at, hop on daddy, um, but my, <laughs> my wife fended him off. So, all right, uh, I've got to thank her for that. All right, well, good talking to you, man. We'll we'll chat soon. Definitely, man. I appreciate it, Alan. Take care, man. All right, bye bye. Peace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We know.